Welcome to Sliding Home, the weekly baseball performance podcast featuring interviews with coaches, players, and exercise scientists, sharing their secrets to help you raise your game and knock it out of the park. You're just in time for first pitch. Here's your host, Dr. Chris McKenzie. Welcome back to the Sliding Home Podcast. My name is Dr. Chris McKenzie, board certified sports and orthopedic physical therapist for players in Major League Baseball, minor leagues, the NCAA, and youth baseball everywhere. Uh, first, I want to apologize for not posting up on this podcast uh, once a week like I had hoped. That, that was definitely the goal, but thank you very much for the loyal listeners for sticking with me. I promise to get back on the bandwagon here soon, but today I have a really great guest. Uh, his name is Kyle Bodie. I was able to interview him a couple weeks back. Uh, we talk about you know what the driveline in throwing actually is, uh, what Kyle's weighted, weighted baseball program looks like, why some people dislike weighted baseball training, uh, how you can still throw hard with poor layback or that lost external rotation that you need when you uh, when you're throwing. So we get into a lot of stuff. At sometimes it can be a little bit technical. So, uh, but hang in there, okay? There's a lot of insights if you're not technically minded. So, um, so let's uh, let's get right into the show, and I'll see you guys on the other side. All right, guys, welcome back to the Sliding Home Podcast. We've got a great guest today from the West Coast, from DrivelineBaseball.com, Mr. Kyle Bodie. So welcome to the Sliding Home Podcast, Kyle. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. So um, let's get right into this. You were down at our facility, down at CK Performance on the East Coast, pretty much right after Christmas and right before the new year. Uh, and it was really cool to have you here. There was a lot of people in the crowd and uh you know what you were teaching was you know it's really like cutting edge stuff it's stuff that you don't see um well it's information that's becoming more prevalent now uh because of guys like you but in the general average pitching coach world it's kind of stuff that you probably won't you won't even hear about so i just want to thank you very much for uh you know furthering the profession thanks well that no, was a lot of fun um hoping to get back in the fall and uh work out with everybody again so i'm really excited it was i thought it was uh, one of our better seminars yeah man cool all right so um what does the dri- what is the actual drive line in throwing that's a great that's a great question you know it's adapted from what like dr mike marshall's talked about and the way we define it is uh the the, the basically the the instant that force application is initiated, so that would be internal rotation and elbow extension, you know, kind of the dual engine of what's going on in the shoulder and the arm, um, to the, ball, the uh, ball release. And so the best way to kind of view that would be looking at it from an overhead camera and then kind of draw the path of the ball and track the ball's flight. And, um, you know, so the, the main kinematic parameter in that regard, what we're looking for, you know, we're, we're measuring the length of time that force is applied, uh, kind of how fast the internal rotation occurs and elbow extension occurs. The timing of those metrics, of course, is, is important. But also the uh, the uh, direction of elbow extension is huge. So, um, for example, like a, a uh, an ellipse around the target, or an ellipse around the spine that has a, like, a focal points that are much further apart would lead to a, a much... Uh, like a longer oval, if you if you um, if you want to imagine that, um, a more of a circular path indicates 
like a significant early onset trunk rotation, early onset of elbow extension, and uh, has in research science, both ours and in peer-reviewed science, shows that uh, you know joint compression loading, or I'm sorry, uh, valgus loading goes way up uh, in the elbow, and so it's stuff we would try to want to avoid. So that's kind of the main, the main uh, impetus behind the name and kind of how we uh, yeah. we got we got started. Now, does that have anything to do with that corkscrew motion that you were guys having try here in in their windup? Yeah, you know that's kind of that's kind of a more efficient way to get the the ball into that into that path. I think um, you know some Japanese scientists, uh, Ryu to uh, Ryu Himeno and uh, Kashi uh, Tezuka, can't remember his first name, mm. um, talked a lot about kind of that uh, looped spiral effect, and you see it a lot with Japanese pitchers like Yu Darvish, um, but then you also see it. You know, a lot of guys have. Um, accidentally or whatever adopted it like David Robertson of the Yankees Trevor Bauer with the Indians um, and I think it's just a really efficient way to get the arm into that drive line not that that's the only way we have a lot of guys with a really long and loose arm action one of our best clients from high school is now the closer or a main reliever for Oregon State um, and he's got really long arm action and yet he's still 94 to 97 Jeez. in games his name's uh, Drew Rasmussen with the uh, Beavers so he's uh, he could do it any different ways sometimes it's just about cueing the cueing the arm action yeah okay awesome now I'm going to call you the weighted, the weighted baseball guy. Because sure. when I first heard of you, it was through that. <laughs> so you're a big believer when it comes to weighted baseball training for velocity improvement. Now, besides the obvious answer that it just works, you know, why are you such a big believer? Um, so you know, we use two different types of weighted balls, and we can get into that later. But the reason I like overload and underload implements is primarily – um, you know, it has a lot of backing in research science. Guys like uh, Alan Blitzblau and Dr. Coop Duran did a lot of research on the subject, um, and that's what initially brought me to it. As a fun fact, actually, about seven years ago, we accidentally got into weighted ball training. It wasn't even um, wasn't even on purpose. I ordered. Uh, we always use two pound balls for arm care and like specific elbow strengthening exercises. Yep. But Frozen Ropes, who was then making weighted balls, sent me a set of weighted balls from like three ounces to eleven ounces when I ordered a two pound ball. And I said, yeah, I don't want these. I don't, I don't believe in these. These don't work. Um, let me send, send me my two-pound ball. They said, ah, just keep the baseballs and we'll send you a two-pound ball. So one day we were screwing around and I was like, ah, you know what? We, we got 70 bucks worth of equipment for free. Back then that was a lot of money <laughs> for our business. Uh-huh. And uh, I said, we might as well use it. So we designed a little quick research study, you know, six to eight weeks. Just picked uh, six guys out and had them do a really basic throwing program. And the results were really undeniable. And so I said, wow, I really need to think about that. And that... I'm proud to say that mentality continues at driveline baseball. We're constantly testing, and so that I, I guess that was the reason that we fell in love with it. Um, over time, we learned that overload training really helps clean up inefficiencies of arm action, and underload training really helps uh, build intent and kind of speed up that arm and really uh, cue the right things that we want without with less, much less, and ideally no verbal instruction uh, to the kid. Um, and that's that's really valuable. Awesome. Now, why do you think that that occurs? Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways that it can kind of manifest itself. But for the overload stuff, uh, you know, if you watch guys like that throw the javelin or the shot put, even in the javelin, they have uh, the, the most prominent coaches have the worst mechanical instruction. You know, they tell them to throw the javelin, uh, carry the carry the javelin behind their back in a full elbow extension to get like a longer path, um, and yet every elite javelin or every javelin thrower immediately on, upon foot strike bends their elbow tightly within 90 degrees closer to the head and launches the javelin because obviously it's the most efficient way to propel a, an object that weighs that much. Um, 
And so the shot put is the same way. The, the, the heavier the implement, the closer the body gets. And then from a physics perspective, rotational torque goes way up. Efficiency of torque goes way up. The closer, you know, weighted object is closer to the body. And so an overload implement really forces that. Now with a five-ounce ball or a baseball, just because um, you can get away with having the ball further away from the body uh, and perhaps actually increase angular velocity by extending the elbow earlier, it uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's the best pattern. And in fact, the one of the biggest problems in baseball pitching, in my regard, in my opinion, is that we lack uh, any ability of uh, pain, like proprioception. So you can throw 100 pitches with the worst mechanics, and they will not result in a catastrophic ulnar collateral ligament tear, a forearm flexor strain, um, rotator cuff tear, until years, decades, maybe never later. And uh, as a result, you know, you could be asymptomatic. So as a result, there's no feed-forward mechanism. Whereas if in shot put, if you're going to throw an 8-pound shot put far away from your body, you're going to find out pretty quick that it's not um, not the best way to do it. And so gotcha. as a result, we are a big fan of throwing on the day after your start nice and light because you're going to be sore. And so it really helps figure out, like, oh, this is, you know, I'm opting into a slightly better pattern. Um, it's why theories like guys like Sandy Koufax had the mechanics they did because Koufax had debilitating arthritis and probably opted into a way that minimized his pain, uh, despite you know well-regarded stories of Sandy just constantly being in serious pain every time he pitched. Um, so I think that's kind of a, a main motivator that is lacking in baseball, which I think is a, is a pretty interesting way to look at it. Interesting, yeah. So have you been able to study the uh, the kinematics like with, with your guys that do weighted ball training when they throw a heavier implemented ball? Do, does mm-hmm. that bring that ball cl- closer to their 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 head or their yeah significantly so elbow flexion significantly goes up with the overload balls and and it, elbow extension goes up so the opposite of that with underload balls right. so it's about managing we you know what we want to see and then we do a lot of work with two pound balls a lot of constraint drills to like opt them into the correct kinematic window i guess for their anthropometry and their intent and uh, mm-hmm. yeah so we definitely see Acute changes, but then also chronic changes over time. So it's uh, it's it, it seems to work for, for what we're trying to do. It's, it it does work. Um, whether or not it's the best way to go about it is right. uh, something I let other people decide. Sure. But um, <laughs> for for the inter- for the intended purpose of how we're trying to use it, um, it's been a success. Awesome. And the day after a start, you would use a heavier weighted ball to kind of like retrain the proper mechanics. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll use like a two-pound ball in some in some um, constraint drills, but then we'll also uh, advocate guys play catch from 40, you know, 35, 40 feet with a seven or nine-ounce ball just to kind of kind of activate those external rotators. Um, and uh, you know, if they don't have a weighted ball, we tell them to play just you know even like light lawn toss or whatever out to 100 feet or so um, on the okay. extension only. So you're just putting a lot of arc on the ball. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So we like to do that. Why do you think some people dislike? weighted baseball training i think it's for the same reasons i didn't like it um it's naivety you know um not to necessarily rate on anyone anyone's parade but from a logical for whatever definition of logic you want to use sense for baseball logic it seems to make sense right uh there's just a rash of injuries they seem to be going up year after year whether or not it's due to more injuries actually occurring or diagnosis of injuries going up it doesn't really matter to someone who isn't going to think about it that much Mm -hmm. So they think, why add more energy to the system? Why disrupt someone's mechanics when what we think we know is that changing in mechanics and fatigue and stuff is really what causes injury? Um, so I think that I get it from their point of view. It's an initial knee-jerk reaction, kind of, but kind of in the in the in the um, in the spirit of our original scientists. You know what you should do. What we do today 
is Google for anything that agrees with our viewpoints. And of course, you're going to find plenty of stuff out there, including right. some well-regarded, including some very good articles against weighted baseball training. I might add, there, I, I, there, are, I have a lot of friends who are against weighted ball training who have very good arguments, and I have nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but the first thing you should do is, you know, Google, you know, why is weighted baseball training um, good if you don't if you don't currently think it is good, because right. you'll get all the arguments on that side. Right. Um, and I think that's the soul of, well, I mean, that is science, right? It's repeatability, falsifiability. Um, right. And so that's that's where I think people need to start. Although I think that's just, uh, that's kind of more of a metaphysics comment on the state of education today, um, that people don't do that. So I think that's a big, that's a big reason, really, I do. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing, like, how, how are improvements actually made? They're, they're, they're made by testing things that aren't the norm, you know? You, you yeah. gotta, you gotta, you have to take a little bit of risk you know, so. absolutely yeah and you gotta you gotta test you have to have to have test retest methodology like what are we gonna do you have to have a control group ideally you know like what what are the changes we're looking for um and then go from there so yeah. it's, it's it's hard but i mean you know it's, it's it is annoying we have we just hired an employee who he's been working for us part-time remotely for a while and he's a great employee uh, but he started he moved here and now he's working full-time for us and he uh he's like oh i got this great drill uh, an idea for a constraint drill that I want to do to help clean up lower half efficiency uh, or mechanics. And I said, that's great. If we're going to roll it out, you have to pick six kids to test it on, six yep. kids you don't test it on, yep. and the six kids you do test it on have to have the same instruction as they don't, ex minus the apparatus. We're testing a new piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have to measure I want EMG studies on what you think. Like So for this, it was glute activation, um, foot contact times, we're going to use the force plates, uh, and then kinematics using high speed video. And he's yeah. like, and just just planar kinematics. We don't need three dimensional stuff. And he's like, oh, it sounds like so much work. I said, yeah, but like, that's what you gotta do. Right? Absolutely. And then when you do this, then you know when a kid comes in, you're like, do this drill. You know, you're, he probably doesn't care, but you know yourself that you've tested it, and you can have full faith and credit behind what you teach. Exactly. Um, and so you know, and then of course disclose to kids that you're doing experimental stuff when you're testing it. Um, and then this way you keep it very internally consistent. And um, since we're going to be doing this for the next 30 years, yeah, I think that's very important to set that baseline. Exactly. That's awesome, man. That's, you know, bravo to you for, for that because uh, I know that there's a lot of people who are just like, hey, I had this great idea. Let's do it. Right. And they don't test it or anything. And maybe they'll say it works and or, you know, but, yeah, that's, that's, that's awesome. That's what you want to do. So. Yeah, you know, with with our guy like him and me and some of the adult guys who are done playing ball and it doesn't matter, then we'll we'll screw around with tons of stuff and not really even test it just to get the feel for it. But then we're gonna if we're gonna actually consider rolling it out, we have to design a cohort study and everything like that. Anything you would do as a junior and undergraduate that you know you're slaving away on your, uh, you know, on your on your uh, capstone piece. So I remember that. I remember that all too well. But I mean, it is you know you can't deny. I mean, it is a pain in the ass, but you can't deny that it's you know the best way to kind of test and retest and learn things. Exactly. What does your weighted ball program look like, and how would you progress through it? When someone signs up, um, you know, I think we, we've talked a lot about this privately, but you know, they're going to go through some sort of assessment program, which is changing over time. We're hiring a full-time physical therapist. We are, we're actually in negotiations of hiring Dr. James Buffy, who is a biomechanist who's in a completely different field of work. Um, it's really great stuff, individually, uh, individually assessing actual individual muscle components to the pitching delivery rather than just valgus stress and joint compression mm -hmm. um, very generic terms so it's really exciting um, cool. and then we're gonna go like you know just a basic mobility strength screen 
But then, uh, specific on topic of the ballistic stuff or the weighted ball stuff, we'll actually have them, if they're cleared and cleared to throw and everything looks okay, we'll have them throw weighted balls, you know, three, four, and six and seven ounce balls, which are regular baseballs, five ounces, and monitor those velocities. From the spreads of those velocities, we can kind of inform ourselves, okay, he's a little deficient here, especially in combination with our kinematic parameters. Um, and then from there, we say, okay, here's a four to six week on on ramping program where we're evaluating, you know, two things primarily. One, your work ethic and compliance to work, which is the biggest thing. You know, a lot of guys drop out or don't come in and don't do their work. And two, how well you're going to respond to an initial load of plyo ball training. Very little high intensity work, but a lot of like joint strengthening work and preparing the arm and cueing the, you know, cueing the person to be ready for high intensity training. And then from there, we kind of opt into, you know, 6 to 12 to 18-week blocks of training, depending on their, depending if it's off-season, in-season, and depending on their, the, lo- the level of training advancement. Okay. Interesting. Awesome. Well, if uh, you would like to find out, if any of the listeners would like to find out more, where would they go to to find more specifically about your weighted ball program? Uh, they can get, you know, I would highly recommend anybody download the free ebook on our site. So it's uh, drivelinebaseball.com. It's under our books, or it's the books link. Um, it's called Ballistic Methods Training for Pitchers. It's 19 pages. It really goes into detail how we use Jager bands, plyo balls, and weighted baseballs. Uh, and then if you're inter- and if you get the great results that I know you'll get from that, um, we have a uh, our flagship book is called the um, Hacking the Kinetic Chain, mm. which is hackingthekineticchain.com. Again, you can get more information on driveonbaseball.com, and that's a full training system. And then we also have a youth product called the Dynamic Pitcher for kids younger than 12 years old. Okay, awesome. So when you were out here at the, the CK Performance Seminar, you were talking about an athlete that you were training that doesn't have as much layback or um, late cocking external rotation, yet he still throws very hard. Can you kind of describe this story just a little bit more and maybe hypothesize why he still can? Sure. Yeah, hard? his name is um, Casey Weathers, seventh overall pick in 2007 by the Colorado Rockies. Um, had a good start to his pro career, you know, pitched also at Vanderbilt and was very good there. Um, and, you know, for in AA with the Rockets, he was reaching, you know, over 100 miles an hour, um, not regularly, but occasionally, and primarily sitting 94 to 97. So throwing very hard. Uh, and his strikes were, you know, he threw enough strikes. I wouldn't say he was a command expert, but at that velocity, you don't generally need to be. Um, and, uh, you know, he basically had Tommy John surgery, you know, uh, the your standard pitching the Arizona Fall League didn't feel good, you know. Got an MRI, has a yeah, has Simon John surgery. Um, and I think the dark side of this, which people don't really respect or understand, maybe it's not really popularized in the media. But Casey's an example of a guy with a failed Simon John surgery. And I don't think people really get it. Casey is currently he's about two two fifteen or so, and I would guess. At barely double-digit body fat for a real estimate of body fat. Most people think that they're 10% and they're really like 16%. You know, using an actual DEXA scan or a right. water-based scan, he would be very close to single digits, so extremely lean. Mm-hmm. And so, Casey, I say that because Casey is a guy who obviously takes care of his body, trains very hard, is very compliant with diet and mobility and everything. And um, so it's not a failure of rehabilitation necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, tell well, 16 months later, Casey could still barely, you know, couldn't even fully extend his elbow, seriously lacking elbow flexion extension range of movement, uh, range of motion, and any external rotation in static position would cause serious pain, and this was about in 2009 or 2010. Um, Eventually, he's never even really fully cleared to even pitch off a mound, 
but 18 months or 16 months after his surgery, he just gets on a mound and starts pitching because he just doesn't want to wait any longer. Um, and who would after a year and a half? You know, uh, and then it's not good. It's not working out well. He's still throwing 97, but he's now he can't hit the now he can't hit the broadside of a barn. Uh, and you lose proprioception when they cut into your forearm flexor bundle, uh, and you never know, attach the ligament. Yep. You know, his elbow doesn't feel good, even though he's still throwing hard. Uh, the pro coaches are like, "Oh, it's all in your head. You're a mental case." You know, not really understanding what happens, uh, structural changes. He gets an MRI. He forces them to get an MRI, and if they find out that he has uh, basically an impingement of the ulnar collateral ligament, a bony spur has, has occurred. You know, on the um, on the uh, uh, what, what would it be? It would be the not the coronary process, but uh, anyway, uh, just off the humeral epicondyle yeah. there. Or? Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's uh, you know impinging on the ulnar collateral ligament and causing not pain because obviously there's with a graft there's no you know necessarily nerve attachments there, uh, but it's causing massive destabilization of the elbow. You know they they debride the ligament. Fortunately, it's still able to be used. They don't need to cut it. They uh, you know shave down the bone spur and clean it up. But this only causes additional restriction in the elbow. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, even today, he can't be taken into static external rotation beyond 105, 100 degrees mm-hmm. without serious pain. And he barely can fully extend his elbow and barely touch his shoulder by flexing his elbow. So this whole setup is, say, like, this guy just shouldn't play baseball. Right? Like, this right. guy just shouldn't throw. <laughs> and indeed, when he came here, he was throwing 88 to 90 miles an hour. Um, and his external rotation, dynamically achieved in the delivery, was more typical of a high school freshman. I would say probably about a 135 to 140 degrees of external rotation uh, mm-hmm. in, in pitching. And so we started throwing some weighted balls maybe to increase the stretch or stretch out his external rotators. And that was kind of the idea to speed up his arm. Yet, you know, over time he was able to probably arrange the central nervous system in such a way that he was able to you know, really activate more fast twitch muscle fiber, I'm not sure. But his internal rotation torque is off the charts. He's able to generate unbelievably quick arm action despite overall limited range of motion pattern. Mm -hmm. And so it's led me to think a lot about how velocity is actually developed. You know, the the current understanding is that the greater the, you know, the greater the external rotation and the delivery, the greater the path, the greater the time that you can apply force. Uh, And therefore, at the end of the day, you know, acceleration plus time plus distance or whatever equals velocity, angular velocity. But in Casey's case, he doesn't have that luxury. He doesn't have the ability to generate this large professional range of motion. And in fact, he's probably well below average for a collegiate athlete. And yet his internal rotation torque is incredibly quick, and he throws balls from flat ground from a running gun upwards of 105 miles an hour and can throw 7-ounce balls over 105 miles an hour. So indicating there's some inertial mass you know, pushback in the external rotators that occurs with a heavier ball. Which is to say, I wish I had a good answer of why exactly it happens, but yeah. I think it's actually really interesting because a lot of parallel thoughts occur in vertical jumping. You know, Dr. Franz Bosch talks a lot about guys who take a big squat for the NFL or the NBA and then do um, a big counter movement into a vertical leap to reach their maximum jumps. And so they're often classified into power jumpers who have a huge knee flexion, hip, ex- hip flexion, and then go into hip, you know, knee extension, hip extension, and jump. Um, and then the speed jumpers are the guys that have lower angles and just jump. It kind of seems to just jump off the ground immediately and have more quote-unquote fast twitch muscle fibers. Right. Um, Dr. Bosch would say that the guys who have this large knee flexion are just more inefficient jumpers. You know, they're not necessarily more power. They display more power over over time. Sure, there's a greater distance. 
Um, and so his thought is to take like slack out of the delivery, slack out of the movement to be able to fire things faster and not necessarily think about um, you know the pure biomechanics of it and rather think more on the kinesiological side of it. So it's actually a super interesting field of study that we're kind of embroiled in and have been for the last year and a half. Um, the modern understanding of how velocity is created is not necessarily flawed, but I think there are options on how fastball velocity is created. No different than when somebody loses, like, you know, a sixth of their brain at a young age, and yet, like, due to a trauma accident, the pole impaling their skull or whatever, and yet 20 years later they act as a normal adult, they have a normal IQ, um, because everything kind of rearranges itself around the serious trauma. You know, mm -hmm. we, have a, we have a hard one genotype and a hard one biology that is very resistant to serious damage. So it seems to be really interesting. Uh, so it, I think it underscores, I know it's a long-winded answer to a simple <laughs> question, but I think it, it, I think it really underscores the complexity of sports science and how, how far we have yet to, yet to go. You know, we're nowhere close to figuring this stuff out. Now, that's really interesting how you brought up the 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 jumper with a lot of knee flexion a lot of hip flexion it's almost like oh and then comparing and contrasting that with the guy that really you know is able to take off and jump high with not a whole lot of knee flexion and not a lot of hip flexion those guys are you know able to to create greater amounts of stiffness in mm -hmm. the muscles and you know in, in their tendons whereas it seems like the guys that you know, do like a like a massive squat before they jump. They cannot. Right. It's it's interesting. Yes, yeah, so, and maybe it informs how we train. Right. Obviously, full right. range of motion squatting. I would never say that that's bad. I used to be a powerlifter, and you know, some of the greatest training I did was in very full range of motion. You know, I think people think mobility is this position of greater range of motion. Right. It's like, oh, I can create greater range of motion around the joints that are important, even if I take it to that second level and understand I don't want greater range of motion in the knee moving laterally. You know, I don't want right. you know this valgus. Yeah. You know, even if they understand joint stiffness from a you know that they just generally believe that greater range of motion is good. The level two argument is that strength over the range of motion is extremely important. These compromised positions, and so for football, that's why quarter squats, aside from the ACL loading, is not that great, because you're going to find yourself on a field consistently with the knee below, you know, your femur is going to be below 90 degrees of the heat, you know, so you have to be able to express strength from all positions. Mm -hmm. But in baseball, it's definitely true, too, and I think that's an interesting conundrum, right? We want to be able to display strength and joint stiffness with external rotation of close to 180 degrees, yet it is impossible to, to achieve this position statically, or if you did, you know, it would basically be akin to, you know, human torture. You're basically hanging off a 45 or 50-pound weight from someone's arm on a you know, right. on the table or whatever. <laughs> so how do you actually develop strength at that range of motion? Is it actually even important? Do we really need to get to 180 degrees? Is it possible that increasing joint stiffness and reducing laxity is a good idea? I think these are really unanswered questions that are going to take a long time to answer if we ever do get an answer. Yeah. Cool stuff, though. Yeah, for for the, for the four people who are still listening to the anatomy nerd talk, it's <laughs> it, it is pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. It's what I keep. It's what I think about on a pretty regular basis. Makes us a lot different than the average trainer. Sure. Um, so, in the pitching motion, you know, I heard you say that you are more concerned with creating rotational velocity or momentum as opposed to linear momentum. Can you one uh, kind of like describe the difference and tell us where that would happen in the delivery, and then maybe two, how you can train to improve this? 
Yeah, rotation, you know, angular velocity of the torso just dominates everything. If you look at peer-reviewed studies by ASMI and uh, Aguinaldo and other other researchers, uh, it, it actually shows between mediocre, like bad, mediocre, and elite throwers based on velocity alone, um, hip rotation angular velocity is a non-starter. Basically, it's insignificant between all three groups, which is really interesting because most coaching says, you know, you have to, it's the hips and the shoulders, the hips have to turn really fast, and the shoulders connect the momentum. And in reality, uh, the research seems to show that that's not true. But what they do show is that hip rotation occurs much earlier and quicker from an acceleration standpoint in the elite guys than it does in the mediocre guys, which is exactly the opposite of what is generally taught. People are generally taught to open the hip as late and fast as possible, when in reality the hips, all their function seems to be is to have a floor. They have to rotate quick enough, no doubt, but they also have to be timed correctly with um, you know, the torso position correctly. And so what we do a lot of, we work on a lot of lead leg stability, blocking that lead leg, ability to push through the ground and create good ground reaction force on the lead leg. Um, and then we work a lot of anti-rotation work with the torso. So we do a lot of pal-off press, um, a lot of manual resistance to make sure they can feel that torso is closed while the hips are open and maintain that position. Um, if we're asking them to rotate off that separated position, um, they need to have a lot of you know, proprioception, a lot of awareness, but also a lot of core strength. So we do a lot of manual resistance and cueing and pal-off pressing, um, stuff that's really common in the back rehab community. Uh, Dr. Stuart McGill has talked a lot about that. Uh, but then we do a lot of, we will do some active stuff like med ball throwing and stuff like that. But general core strength, I think, is really important. And by core strength, I mean a lot different than doing sit-ups on a BOSU ball. I mean, like, doing full range of motion squats, deadlifts, you know, isometric work for the core, um, being able to just engage that core correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, in one study that you had uh, cited when you were here, I'm not sure if it was Campbell in 2010 or whatnot, but the, the ground reaction force of the lead leg, um, it was it was kind of shown that there wasn't for all the guys out there that believe that there's that velocity is created by the trail leg by the push off mm-hmm. uh, compared with the uh, compared with the lead leg when it hits the ground and I remember you saying something and I'm I'm not sure if it was you that you, you were cueing your guys or there was another coach that was cueing his his guys to actually act like they were stomping that lead leg into the ground. Sure, yeah. Can you describe that just a little yeah. bit? Yeah. You know, I think there's a big movement, or there has been, and there, there continues to be a movement of, you know, triple extension off the back leg um, to create a large push-off force into lead leg blocking to create linear momentum into angular velocity, and it makes a lot of sense from a, a logical point of view. Um, the issue is, that because from an Olympic weightlifting standpoint and jumping standpoint, triple extension and force under the ground is everything. Right. And so I absolutely agree. As someone who's coached you know, coached people for Olympic weightlifting, for people I've coached athletes who will be on the Olympic team for shot put, and so I understand that, that argument. Certainly I do. However, the you know, pitching is a very you know, triplanar movement, and Olympic weightlifting is not. In fact, it is aggressively single plane with the idea that any movement in the other planes is is very bad, right? You know, the idea that there shouldn't be any rotation um, in the in the clean. Otherwise, right. it's an inefficient pull. So I think that throws a huge factor, you know, huge wrench into it. But then the studies do show, you know, a measurement bias on a, on a trailing leg push-off force could be simply this, right? The idea that we're creating increased ground, ground reaction force in, means that the push-off force is greater is not necessarily true. What you see in elite throwers like Chapman and guys who throw very hard is not necessarily triple extension of that back leg, but increased sole foot, you know, sole of the foot ground contact time. 
And so they're actually just applying force. You know, that could be from a completely different methodology than push-off, necessarily. That may not actually be the kinesiological effect that they're seeing from the ground. Rather, maybe they're, the sole of their foot contacts the ground for a longer period of time, and as a result of moving forward and linear momentum being what it is and gravity taking over due to the slope of the mound, they see an increased, quote-unquote, push-off force, when in reality it's nothing more than, you know, gravity doing its job. And so I think it's actually a pretty interesting subject because nobody really talks about the timing of the ground reaction forces. Nobody has synchronized ground uh, force plates to high-speed video, to kinematics, and actually evaluated how they all affect each other. Um, they just put force plates into the mound and say, oh, well, this is kind of the gross numbers, and maybe they do timing based on the lead and the trail leg, but that really doesn't tell us a lot of how it's actually achieved. And so it's... Um, Anybody, in my opinion, anybody who says, like, these are the things that really matter and these are the things that actually, these are the only things and it's the one true religion, um, those guys are, you know, just selling a product and they're not really actually interested in the science behind it. And so maybe that's for some people, but that's not really us. We really want to know kind of exactly what's creating velocity kind of from a healthy standpoint. And I think, I'll be the first to admit, I think we're very far off from figuring out anywhere close to an ideal model. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's still... There's still a lot of knowledge out out there that we that we as a community in the baseball community have to gain. So um, tons of it. Just like what you were saying, there's there's a study right there that that could be ran. You know, absolutely. Up every, you know, <laughs> yeah. It's 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 not too difficult. Really, you just need a couple. You know, the force plates. You need to have the cameras. You cameras. need to synchronize. It's kind of annoying, um, but it can be done. And it's we've done stuff like that we have some preliminary interesting results that seem to verify what we're saying but um and that's the frustrating thing about this industry right you want to give away research if you've worked in academia or respect academia you want to publish stuff but it's for as as you know um it's peer dealing with peer review and dealing with irb and stuff like that when you are working as a trainer um is really counterproductive yep. and for for what really just to say that you have kind of publications under your name when in reality like all that really matters is that you're affecting athletes performance um right. and it's a completely different way of thinking about it so it's kind of difficult we want to be able to give away as much information as we can because we don't think that threatens our business model i think sharing information is always good yep. um but it's on certain things it becomes really difficult to to maybe facilitate that sometimes gotcha now what kinds of studies are you running now and just like what you mentioned, those preliminary results. Um, that well, yeah, the biggest, yeah, the biggest thing we're doing right now. I, you know, I feel with the release of our book, Hacking the Kinetic Chain and the Training System, I feel very good about where we're at from a velocity standpoint and a developing kind of a higher durability pitcher. I feel really good where we're at. I'm not saying we have it solved, but for this off season and for the next one, we'll probably do very few research. We'll do very few case studies and investigations into velocity. It just doesn't seem to be um, where we want to be. Um, it's on our current constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, what I think somebody, what we're researching now primarily, which nobody has done in my opinion, is what actually creates strikes, command, control, spin rate. And so that's been going on for a few months, I'd say about six to seven months, with a lot of different studies and a lot of different technologies on, and a lot of different methods on how we're going to get guys throwing more strikes. And the results have been, you know, outstanding so far. But, you know, the primary people that are in this group are professional pitchers. And yeah. so we won't know the results until after this year. You know, we're, we're excited to send those guys to Pro Bowl. 
we've had a few college guys, and again, that season just started. Um, but it's a lot of random methodology training. It's very different. We're not throwing bullpens to a catcher and giving <laughs> instruction, and we're doing a lot of stuff with vision, but not okay. in a typical way. But we are doing a lot of overload, overload, underload implements, a lot of uh, destabilization training. Um, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, we hope to have a book on the market by late quarter four, 2016 on this. Okay. I think that will be enough time to wrap up the research, assuming that it's a positive thing and actionable. That would okay. be, you know, middle of 2016, I think would be very optimistic. And I think realistic is quarter four of 2016 in time for the 2017 offseason. Could you give us any insight into the destabilization? Yeah, methods? absolutely. So we're doing a lot of, um, I think when people pick up a baseball, um, they automatically opt into, they've thrown a baseball a million times, you know, if they're 24 years old prior to that. And so a certain amount of QA, and they've been told to do things. A lot of psychology goes into the, you know, as soon as they pick up a baseball, all their life experiences kind of sum up to having that baseball in their hand. And so I think it's very hard to coach somebody once they've already entered that mindset, whether they know it or not. And so we do a lot of altering release point by using overload balls and underload balls. We will do a lot of destabilization work um, with stuff that I used to not like. We used to we, we've done some Bosu ball work actually on the tra- on the lead leg to disrupt you know kind of the the parasympathetic nervous system um, and really think about uh, stabilizing that lead leg. And not necessarily cueing it. We're just trying to take guys out of their comfort zone. So we also do some random training as well. Will you guys no, have c- kind of like throw off a mound and then land with their, their lead leg? Nothing off a mound. Nothing like full effort. Just, uh, okay. yeah, nothing like that. We don't really want to cause, uh, <laughs> that's, you know, we don't want to cause an No, no, no. We'll use like an Air X pad, like something okay. with a shorter height. Sure. And then we'll do like flat ground rocker drill throws, stuff like that. Um, okay. We'll also do a lot of, um, we'll also do... Quite a bit of underload overload stuff. We do a lot of random method training. We do some throws with the with the offhand, so some left-handed throws. Basically, cool. we, instead of having them throw like a series of five pitches with a baseball, which really isn't going to help their command, no matter how you cue them, uh, we'll have them throw a pitch. Then we'll have them do an unrelated activity or something that disrupts their release point, and then within a very short time window, have them throw another pitch mm-hmm. to just really gauge you know the differences. We're not actually looking for any acute changes. We're looking for chronic adaptations to release point as well as kinematics and just strike percentage. The results have been really promising so far with two guys who have had generally poor command in the big leagues or in one of the big leagues and a few in the minors. Um, And so I'm really excited to see where this goes. Cool. Awesome, man. Well, um, where can people go to find out more about you and where can they look up you on Twitter and yeah, yeah, twitter.com slash driveline bases. Um, so just driveline base and then S, it's like plural. Um, and then, you know, drivelinebaseball.com has links to all of our social stuff. We have Instagram and, you know, we try to upload a lot of videos of the youth pitching class and we try to give away a lot of information for free. Like I said, that free ebook is a really great place to start. Awesome, Kyle. Fantastic. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show today. And uh, I look forward to getting you back on in the future. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm excited to come back on. I appreciate it. And uh, hopefully be out in Philadelphia here in a couple months. Heck yeah, man. And uh, just like last time, you can stay with us. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I forgot for the, for the listeners out there. I stayed at uh, Dr. McKenzie's place, and he took me to the airport. It was thanks for the hospitality. Yeah, yeah man. <laughs> Anytime. All right, bud. All right, great. All right, we'll see you. See you, man. That interview with Kyle Body from Driveline Baseball. Dot com. I thought it was pretty interesting to hear that having not a ton of layback, you can still throw heat, you know, and really kind of that 
really throws a wrench into our theory that you got to have tons of ex external rotation to you know be able to generate that massive amount of velocity and surely there's that is a way but there's also another way and um, you know how exactly that happens whether there there's you know as we were referring to creating more like joint stiffness and through stiffness in muscles and tendons that there's just so much force created and that you're still able to throw heat with a limited amount of external rotation you know could that be a possibility as well and how do we train that so some cool stuff in there so i hope you were able to derive some information from here maybe you probably have even more questions and that's cool asking good questions is you know a good place to get to the right answers and those answers might not be out there yet but maybe you are one of the people that will help help drive this training help drive this testing forward and move the profession of performance enhancement for sports for baseball forward so if you are uh, feel free to contact Kyle at driveline bases or on his website um, you can find all about uh, his new book, Hacking the Kinetic Chain, and the uh, explosive book for weighted ball training as as well. And I'm pretty sure that you'll get some good results from that stuff too. So head over to drivelinebaseball.com or you can head over to drchrismckenzie.com forward slash drivelinebaseball. And uh, I'll have all those links linked up in the show notes below there. So Hope you guys enjoyed this. If you did, please head over to iTunes and give it a rating. Give it a five-star rating. I hope that you would do that for me. And um, again, you guys should be kicking butt out there. And I want to hear about your successes. I want to hear about your trials and your tribulations so that I can help you improve that. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at Dr. which is Dr. Chris McKenzie. And um, I will look forward to answering those questions so until the next time you guys know what to do get after it thank you for listening to your sliding home you can find us on facebook and twitter just search for dr chris mckenzie